podcast hosting for the Run With It podcast is provided by Transistor.fm. Welcome to Run With It, the podcast that brings you business ideas from established entrepreneurs. Each episode, you'll hear a new business idea and the exact steps our guest would take to get started. Follow through and you can earn a free mentoring session with today's guest and potentially a business partnership. Here are your hosts, Chris Justin and Ethan Janney. I'm Chris Justin. And I'm Ethan Janney. And on today's show, we have David Hauser. David founded Grasshopper, which was bootstrapped to over $30 million in annual recurring revenue and acquired by Citrix in 2015. He also founded Chargeify, which for over 10 years has enabled thousands of businesses to manage the recurring revenue lifecycle. Mark Cuban was an investor, and it was acquired by Scaleworks in 2016. He's built, sold, and invested in a number of different companies throughout his life since high school. His most recent project is a book called Unstoppable. Four Steps to Transform Your Life. David, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, it's a real honor. Very excited to have you here. You have quite the resume with Grasshopper, with Chargeify. So I think it's a real treat for our listeners to be able to hear exactly how you think through a new business idea, which is what the meat of this podcast is. We want to leave some time at the end for you to talk about your book and anything else you'd like to share. But let's get into your business idea here. So tell us about a problem you're seeing in the world today. The most interesting problem I'm seeing today is really uh, in old school industries, right? So take the the most kind of boring industries possible. Um, it could be anything from a dentist office uh, to manufacturing or shipping or whatever. And I think providing technology solutions in those verticals are the most interesting. And when I start to step back into that, looking at things like CRM, kind of all the customer facing things that today are done very manually, right? So I think you can pick literally any one of those industries. And it's the same software application, roughly, except customized highly to that industry, both from a marketing perspective and messaging perspective, but also from a functionality perspective. So we've played with this a little bit in some of these industries. So I have a little bit of experience there. This, I think, is the largest opportunity out there compared to you know, competing in other places where there's 50 options and you know, 10, 10 different people making task management software, right? And all selling to web developers and SaaS businesses, right? Like, that niche, I think, is just overly crowded. Great. Just to kind of reiterate and clarify what you're talking about, you're saying just picking an old school niche that doesn't really have a custom CRM, make a custom CRM, market it and specialize it for exactly what they do. And you've got yourself a pretty solid business there. Right. So we started doing this in the dental space, specifically orthodontists, right? And looking at like, how do you talk to these people? What are the very specific things they need? And it's not about like customizing a CRM, right? It's like building the things that will automate and improve their business on a day-to-day basis and bring them, quote unquote, into the technology age where things might be manually or on very old school technology, like a Windows server client relationship type software, right? With no ability to update and, you know, very slow. Um, so I think migrating all of that, but the key being, how do you improve their business so they can get either more customers or more revenue because of using the software? I want to share an example that can expand this. You're talking about CRM. So I want to share something that's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. At my uh, former company, Shell, we have a number of procedures that you need to go through in order to uh, enact change, make sure that the plan is going to stay safe and make sure that you're covering your bases. It's all documented. The most used one of those is called the management of change process. It's a process that takes quite a long time to get through. If you're going to make a change to the plant, you want it with uh, dangerous hydrocarbons. You want to make sure that you're covering all these aspects that are important. 
A lot of people have to interface with it and it's asynchronous. So there's a technology solution out there in place that is widely disliked. <laughs> Everyone hates it. A few years ago where I worked there, if you wanted to get an MOC done quickly, you did it on paper. You printed everything out and you got everyone in a room and you shuffled everything around. And as you can imagine, that's not a great way to store that data, right? You have to scan all these documents and upload it back into the system. It makes it hard to read in the future, everything that comes with uh, having a paper process. So that's a completely other example. The other thing I wanted to bring in here, I know I shared this with you uh, maybe a month ago, Ethan, but if you look at Y Combinator's page, they have a request for startups. And one of the categories that they have on there is enterprise software. And they say flat out, enterprise software just, it sucks. And there's so much room for improvement here. If, if you want to come to Y Combinator and you are going to tackle this category, that's one of the things that we're looking for. And I think the reason they list that, right, is they see all the other startups, right? Like the 500 people working on the same problem for the same industry. And they want to expand that portfolio of companies as wide as possible. I think when you start to look at enterprise software, there are so many very, very large industries that are untouched, right? That are spending tremendous amounts of money on software and purchasing, right? So um, I, I think it's very interesting. What if you don't have experience in one of these industries? It seems as though you would need to be in the know in order to solve the problems that they have and even understand the opportunity? I think this is a great question where I think there's actually a tremendous opportunity not being in the industry. I, I There's clear advantages where like if I have been inside of a process like you have, right, I could see the clear problems. But I think we also then put on our blinders and we ignore what we might be able to bring from another industry. So if I'm looking at an industry I have no idea about, my eyes are wide open, which means I need to do customer interviews. I need to do early things and talk to real people that are having these problems to do discovery. And in doing that discovery, the way I look at things are from a very clean perspective. So I will hear things very differently than someone within the industry. That's the kind of give and take of the pros and cons here. So I would turn it around and say, I think there's actually a tremendous advantage if you do it right and you actually listen and dig pretty deep into talking to real users. This is great. Let's say that you were looking at industries to work with. Is that how you would position yourself as? Yeah, I would ride that all the way, right? And, and position it as like, look, I'm bringing airline technology to cars or like whatever it is, right? And say, the way that we were so productive in X industry is how I'm going to make dental hygienists productive, right? Like whatever it is, I don't think it really matters. But yeah, to me, it's just taking the advantage you have and riding it as fully as possible rather than trying to hide and saying like, oh, I need to find three industry people to like put on the webpage and say, I have industry experience. No, like go the opposite direction. Say, we have none and we'll learn everything about you and we're going to do it better. One piggyback I wanted to give on that point, which I love that you brought it up. Number one, you know, we, we will have some listeners that have never started a business before even, right? Or they wouldn't know an industry, they don't know how to get started and to have that kind of a refreshing mindset that you can always turn an obstacle into an advantage um, or, or turn things on on their head. And, and just to piggyback on your point of power of being an outsider, I've got a two-year-old um, and Chris is about to have a little one as well. And we noticed this with children, right? They're so observant. They're so intelligent. Like, why do they always bring such new and creative things to the table? It's because they've literally never seen things before, right? And it's it's quite magical to watch. And there's no reason that you can't have that process going on in business development. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think even at Grasshopper, this exact same thing happened. Me and my business partner had zero telecom experience besides using a phone, like having a cell phone. That was our experience. And so it was a totally new industry for us. We found a problem we wanted to solve, and it happened to be in, a te- in telecom, and that's how we were going to solve it. Um, and I think because of that, we made choices very different than the rest of the industry. We stayed away from voice over IP. We allowed people to make decisions about what types of phones they wanted. So we were very independent. We didn't require desktop apps and things like that. We said, look, people use email and phone and text and all these other mediums. Let's integrate into those. So that was a very different perspective than anyone else was taking in the industry. I apologize if you've shared an answer to this in various medium, but what do you say to people who say, I'm not passionate about the telecom industry or, or whatever else, dental? <laughs> yeah. So our core purpose at Grasshopper was empowering entrepreneurs to succeed. So what we were passionate about was the customer base we were working with on a daily basis. And end of the day, like, did we love telecom? No, but we loved providing the service, which allowed customers to sound more professional, uh, stay connected with their customers, right? Like those are things you can get passionate about. When we were looked at Grasshopper, there were two things. One is we knew the customer base we wanted to work with, the people like us, so that we were very passionate about that and solving that problem. Um, and then two, being able to do it in a place that we loved, right? So part of building Grasshopper was just building a place that we love to be at. And that you can be very passionate about no matter what industry you're in, right? Well, first of all, a quick question, which we may or may not have to address. Should we pick a very specific niche for this conversation or should we leave it general? Do you guys have an opinion? In my mind, you can leave it pretty general because it, the exact same process works across the board in my mind. You know, we can use one to kind of play the game, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't think it really matters, to be quite honest. Fair enough. And Chris, do you agree? I like the idea of leaving it general. I think that there are going to be people who want to go after different industries for whatever reason. Maybe they're in certain parts of the country that uh, they have easier access to an industry that, that they want to target. And yeah, I think that we can drop in examples, but leave it general. Sounds fair. So my next question then is, how can a listener who's going to start one of these businesses determine the value that they can provide? And you know, how, how can they start charging someone? When should they start charging someone? Any ideas on that for people? Yeah, I mean, so the first step in my mind is talking to actual customers. And literally the first question I'm asking outside of learning about their business, but like when I start to dig in past there, right, like questions about what I'm going to do is like, what can I add value and how much would you pay, right? Like I want to have very specific questions. Like if I can deliver you 10 more customers, how much is that worth and how much would you pay me out of how much that's worth, right? Or if I can increase the number of people you can see in a day or the number of shipments you can send out, like what is the dollar value of that worth? And would you be willing to pay me some portion of it? And if so, how much, right? Um, I think those are the valuable questions where we always ignore that, right? I want to be as close to the money as possible, right? Which is why I like these older industries that have very little automation, because if I can help add a customer or keep a customer longer, I'm in the stream of dollars very, very quickly. So if I'm charging 10% of that, which could be a very large dollar figure, it's very small to them, right? That's where I would start. And then the next step immediately after that is, okay, you told me you would pay this. I can deliver for this for you. Pay me today, right? Like if it's a week later, a month later, whatever it is, come back and have a very direct conversation. Look, Chris, you told me that if I did this, you would pay me X. I can do this for you. Will you give me a credit card today? 
I think the interesting aspect of this is when you're dealing with enterprises, you're not dealing with owners necessarily. So it's not their money that they're spending, which you have to approach the sales process a little bit differently, right? If you're dealing with a manager at that level, they want to look good to their boss and it's not necessarily as painful for them to to pay you, right? If it's a cleaner transaction, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. So I think that, you know, anything you can do to improve someone's job and if their job, part of it is their road to promotion, right? Like looking at understanding those metrics, like how are they measured in terms of how will they be promoted? The more you can assist with that, the easier the sale. Um, I think the one caveat here is the problem with selling to enterprise is people don't always want to take risks, right? So you have to reduce risk as much as possible because no one wants to get fired over picking David's solution right? Like that, that doesn't happen. You, if you can take away that risk as much as possible and say, look, like a trial period, a, you know, a ramp up period, like whatever it is to reduce those risk points may be required when we start talking about large enterprises. And to circle back to the question of value proposition here um, and saying, hey, you told me you'd give me, a, you know, so and so much, you know, how about the credit card number and let's get started. At that point in the conversation, how much of the solution has been developed? Is this literally like pre-selling it and saying, you give me the credit card so I can get started developing it? Or did you go back and spend some time on your own trying to put it together before getting the financing? I would do a little combination of both, right? Because I think early on, you'll find when you first ask for the credit card, that's when you get the pullback, right? They're like, well, and then you hear the truth come out, right? So I would ask even before I have the solution developed to kind of really dig into the pain points and find out and do discovery of what it really is. Um, so that's the first step, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I would have zero at that point, but I would want to position it as if it was ready, mm-hmm. right? And then at the end of the conversation, look, look, you know, I just really want to understand pain points. And most of the time you'll find that what they said the first time is not true the second. So, um, and then I would come back with the real solution, right? And say, like, I'm ready to sign you up. Like, let's do this right now. Yeah. For the listeners who aren't familiar, basically called handling objections, right? But you don't always know the client's objections, right? You you don't find them out until the very last minute when you thought they were going to say yes, and they finally say no. (laughs) But yeah, that's, uh, I like that. It's that final decision point, right? Like when you get to the cash register, that's the ultimate decision, right? Um, and that's when the truth comes out. Ah, I didn't like the quality of the shirt. I'm going to go put it back and I'm not going to pay for it right now. But you might have gotten all the way to the cash register. Mm-hmm. How many of these conversations do you think you'd want to have before you actually start developing a solution? I, depending on the size of the industry, right? Like if I can get high level information across maybe five or 10 conversations, maybe that's suitable. To me, the most important thing is when I start seeing themes. If I can see clear themes that I can pull out across multiple conversations, and I believe those themes will continue, I become more confident. And I think that's when you can start to reduce the number you speak to. The problem inherently then is if you don't see any themes, maybe the solution is too custom. And I would shy away from that, right? Like if it is highly customized per person we're speaking to, then I'd be a little more concerned. I want to see themes early and often, and I want to see those themes continuing over time. And if it takes 20 people to talk to, it takes 20. Like, I I don't know the exact number. It's all about themes. I imagine you're very good at this process at this point. So can you share an example or a couple examples of questions that you would ask to hone in on that pain and those themes? Yeah. So um, I think you start with productivity, right? Like what is the things that slow you down the most during the day and stop you from getting work done? I think those are the most painful things that people can realize right away. 
the opposite of that is like, what can I do to improve things? That's harder for people to describe. Right. If I say to you, what prevents you from getting through your emails during the day? You could come up with five things, right? Pretty quickly. And now I understand some of the problems and I can start to dig in. Then I go the opposite direction. Once I've started to understand pain points, I then say, okay, if I could deliver more customers, how would I do that? You know, what are the problems in getting new customers? Right. Like that's the opposite end of the spectrum. Like how do I increase your revenue um, outside of productivity, which is keeping customers longer or getting new customers? Um, or increasing customer value. I think those are the the secondary areas to dig into after direct pain points. But I would still prefer to be in a direct pain point, as close to possible as the money, but a direct pain point that someone can quickly identify and quickly speak to. It, it sounds like the subsection of the organization that you'd want to speak to close to money would be sales and marketing. Would you tend to lean toward working with them? Um, yeah, to some extent, I mean, I guess it depends on the industry to, to a little bit, but sales and marketing, customer service, they're closest to the customer and then operations, right? People delivering the solution of whatever it is, um, cause they're again, close to the customer and they probably have the most pain, right? So I, I, I say that now when you start speaking at the executive level, things are very different in a large enterprise because their cares are much more about reporting and metrics and things like that. It's harder to dig out the details. Yeah, I would stay away from the executive level initially and more in the people that are touching customers on a regular basis. Going back to the objection standpoint a little bit, a related example here, let's say a guy's got an existing business. He has a credit card processing that he does on a bi-monthly basis, and he's still paying the, the secretary to punch in the numbers in that little machine that they used to have and actually still have. Um, you can tell this is actually a real world example. Uh, <laughs> you could convince that guy to switch over to say, for example, just getting his automated billing through uh, Stripe or something like this, right? And that's a process that you can charge for because you're you're helping facilitate it. He decides he just doesn't like it. He likes it the old way. What I want to know from you is what's your perspective on clients like that? Are you just looking for the ones that it just works for them? Is there some amount of cajoling and pushing that it's your job as an entrepreneur to bring them forward? What are your thoughts on, you know, bringing people out of the stone age or not? Yeah, I think this is kind of the next step, which is as I start to define the market and the opportunity, I need to figure out how many people might be willing to kind of be at that tipping point, right? And I would never want to convince the mm-hmm. people that are not. Right. It is, a, it is both a demoralizing and not fun process, but I think also a tremendous waste of resources mm-hmm. and time. Right. Like, so those customers I would cut out quickly right away and be like, look, they just don't fit today. So the question in my mind is more can I find enough customers to build a sustainable growing business today of people that will be willing to make the switch? And then over time, as that person retires and someone either buys or takes over the business, they will become my customer over time. So I want to be at a roughly a tipping point of that. And also, it'd be nice to find an industry that also has a turnover over of those people. So let's take dentists, for example. Um, as dentists age out, they either sell or give their business to a family member or someone else coming along. So if I know that most dentists today are you know 50 to 60 years old, that's a good time to be looking, right? Because that's starting to get closer to retirement. If in general, dentists today were 20 years old, it might not be the greatest. Now, obviously, if they were 20 years old today, they'd probably be pretty open to technology. So um, maybe not as big a problem. And, and then it doesn't, then I don't even have to worry about it. Can you give me an idea of the sales cycle for this? How long does it take between 
outreach, initial conversation, prototyping a solution, pre-selling it to them, and ultimately delivering it. Yeah. So the place I like to play in the most is mid-end enterprise to tiny, right? So I hate super large enterprise because sales cycle is very long. You have to deal with multiple levels of departments and approvals and executives and all sorts of stuff. I want to deal with one or two decision makers. So that's kind of mid to small enterprises, right? I think the sales cycle should be relatively short in general. Like I don't like organizations that are heavy in sales and long cycles. When I look at kind of a timeline, like I would expect to be having something in customers' hands in like 60 to 90 days, right? From the time that I've identified what I believe is a possible problem. So relatively short cycles. I don't believe in this, you know, kind of super lean MVP stuff where we're kind of putting like things in customers' hands like in 15 days. I get the value of it. I think what's lost there is a lot of the kind of entrepreneurial spirit and passion to define something, right? Because when you're just listening to feedback every day, you lose kind of this core value of what you want to do and kind of what you believe in. And I think that the most most important is believing in something. I believe because of the themes I pulled out from my interviews and talking to people that this industry needs X and being willing to take a chance on that and not change it every two days because a customer said, I don't like it. To make that sort of timeline, do you need to be a coder yourself? This is a hard question. So full disclosure, I can code. I'm just not very good at it. Um, So I can do code reviews now and I can read code. Um, I would not be the person to be writing stuff. At Grasshopper, I did do some of the initial building, but I don't think you need to be a coder nowadays. I think that finding someone to help with this at a relatively low rate, even if you have to outsource it, is definitely possible. And understanding that we may throw away what we build. And I think as long as we're okay with that, this process is fine. And my goal in the initial stage is like, I'll throw away everything as long as it got me to a sustainable cash flow positive position where I can then hire someone who's better and we can rebuild it and we can take the time to do it. We'll do that later on. That's pretty good information to share. That's a nugget, I'd say. What's coming across from your personality and everything you're sharing in general is an immense value on speed, speed to market, speed to delivering the solution, making decisions quickly. This is correct me if I'm speaking out of turn here, but would you say that that's one of your strengths and that's one of the things that you lean into when you're creating a business? Yeah, I think speed is one. I think the other is just taking action, right? Like doing something, a little step each way towards where I want to go. Between those two things, I think that's what adds up to success over time. Like we take lots of little steps again and again and again, um, and we do it at a faster and faster pace, then we get better and better. But I think the key is like just doing something towards it. So for example, at Grasshopper, like if we didn't build the initial prototype and sold it to customers, we would have learned nothing. We would have been sitting there talking to each other saying, well, we think this might be true or that might be true, or I don't know, right? But in 60 days, we were selling to customers. And we were seeing the problems that happened and customers calling up and saying, I have this issue or this broke or this didn't work or I found you via this marketing channel. So in those situations where you are dealing with clients and they're saying this broke or this doesn't work, how do you avoid uh, complete and utter discouragement (laughs) when things are breaking and not working? And I mean, I can tell you have a very positive mind frame around it, but I, you know, clearly you have outsized success. And so other people need to gain a little bit of insight on that mindset of, oh, no, no, that's, we just keep going. (laughs) I I think the first is just being direct and honest and upfront with the customer, right? Like, I'm sorry, like, I apologize, this didn't work for you. Um, We're just starting out. 
um, help me understand how I can do better here, right? And if it's just fixing a bug, it's fixing a bug. If it's changing what we're doing, we'll have a conversation about it. it doesn't mean I'm going to do it, but they just a customer wants to be heard, right? And I think when you start to have those conversations, you'll find all they do is want to be heard. They, they'll come into the conversation all upset about the most ridiculous thing. They just wanted someone to listen to them. And they weren't even at that upset. They weren't going to cancel. They didn't have that big a problem, right? I think when you start to have those conversations yourself, it's much easier to understand that. So one of the things I encourage everyone to do is be having direct customer service conversations with all of your early com- customers, right? So at Grasshopper, like our first hire was a customer service person, but it wasn't until six months in. So that meant I was answering the phone for every customer that called with any problem. Again, pull out themes and you figure out where the problems are, but you're hearing directly from customers. And as we scaled, we tried to implement the same thing where every manager and then ultimately everyone in the company had to take 10 customer calls a, a week or a month as we built the program out so they could hear from people that had both successes and failures with what we did, right? And being close to that at the early stages is very critical. Got a question for you out of left field here. There is a lot of talk in the markets and across the country about a potential recession coming up. Do you think that a business like this is recession-proof or is a good idea to start in the face of a recession? Yeah. So I think a recession is actually a perfect time. We started Grasshopper in not a good time, right? This was after the internet crash. This was when people were telling us not to do these things. I think it's one of the better times. There's more talent available. As companies have to reduce overhead, they reduce people. Um, so there's talent available at lower costs. So that that's a bonus. Um, people are looking to save money and increase revenue, right? So if you can do one of those two things, you have a tremendous advantage. So I, I think the sales process actually becomes easier to some extent. Now, large enterprises move a little bit slower, which is why I like mid to small. The bottom line matters at a much faster pace. But yeah, I would look at it and say, I would much prefer to be in one of these industries in a downturn of the economy or a recession than in a very crowded space of selling a SaaS product to a small group of people that have 10 options. That brings up the topic actually of of competition. So you start building your solution and someone else says, hey, that's a great idea. I'm going to do that. Or maybe something else is in existence. What's your attitude around that? What do you suggest to people's approaches as they're, they're taking the steps? Yeah, so my, my general approach is ignore all competition, right? I think, first of all, competition is good. Um, I just don't want to focus on it or care about it. So I should be educated and know that there are competitors and what they do, why, understanding their messaging and marketing. Um, so maybe I can learn things. However, I want to ignore them. I don't want to have a feature-by-feature checklist. I don't want to worry if they release something and I didn't both for myself, but also as the team grows, because that's demoralizing, right? Like, oh, they're one step ahead, or we're one step behind, or like this race, right? And I think we start focusing on the wrong things. So my general view is, how do I get customers that are not in the business of comparing competitors? So that means, how do I get more customers that don't know that this solution necessarily exists, and don't know of any of my competitors? And that means also in my sales cycle, I also start to deprioritize people that say, can you compare to X, Y, and Z? Will you match this price? My general answer is no. Like, if you want to compare, go on their website, let us know. If we're the right fit, we'll talk to you. Because if you start taking those customers on, they're the most painful customers anyway. The highest churn, the most painful in terms of customer service and all the problems that come along with it. Um, so I try to push them out and let the competitors have the painful guys, right? At the highest level, that's my view. 
I think the one caveat here is when I'm starting, one of the most difficult things is, okay, I came up with this idea. I've identified an opportunity. I start building it. And then someone else comes out with it in the interim, right? You're like, oh man, like someone beat me to it by a a month or two or whatever, right? And this happens inevitably. Like I can't think of a business I started where this didn't happen. It's just the natural progression, right? Like as I start to identify things, other people are identifying things and it happens, right? I think you have to be very careful and just step back and say, the size of the market, it doesn't matter if it was a month or two different. Let's talk about the big picture. But at the time it happens, it's very difficult. And I I get it. I think we've brought our listeners a good overall picture of what this idea is and and how you think about it. What I think would be interesting is to ask you, let's say you woke up one day penniless. You know, you got the shirt on your back, but uh, not much else to your name. You have your computer and your phone, right? What do you do starting now? So the first thing I do is generate enough income to cover my life expenses, right? So somewhere to live, somewhere to eat, like things like that. And I will do like the most basic stuff. So if I have to work on Upwork, Fiverr, or whatever, um, if I have to sell stuff on eBay or you know do Amazon arbitrage or whatever it is, right? Like generate enough income um, to have my base kind of needs dealt with. Because then at that point, I have A, a longer time horizon to start talking about and discovering things. And I have a little bit of the stress removed, right? I'm not saying it all goes away, but a little bit starts to go away. And now I can make smarter and better decisions. So that to me is the base. I have to interrupt because something obvious jumped out there. And I just want to clarify. You did not actually, of all the things you recommended, you did not recommend getting a nine to five job. (laughs) Now, I don't know if that's just your mindset or actually... I mean, there could be a thing there where it's like, maybe that will take up too much of your time to get where you want to go. Just just a quick perspective on that, or is it just a, a subconscious? It's probably a combination. First, like I would never consider it, so it probably just doesn't come to mind at all. Um, but I think the problem with a nine to five job is it doesn't allow me the flexibility to start doing other things. If my goal is to start building something, which would be my personal goal, right? How do I deal with my base needs so I have more time to do that? If I take a nine to five job, I've taken away most of the day. So I think it would be a little bit counterproductive. Look, that's not to say that people that have nine to five jobs today can't do this. I think there's a stepping stone that you can start moving in that direction. You know, some people make the transition to consulting, right? They go nine to five to consulting. That gives some flexibility. Some people say, hey, maybe I can convert my nine to five job to part-time where I work two or three days a week. And now I've freed up a few days a week plus my weekends to do my things. Basically, you get your basic income set so you can live, you can eat. And, and then what are the next steps there from getting a project started now? And now, so now I'm, I'm looking at like, how do I solve problems? Probably my problems first. Are there problems that I see that other people might not see because of my current situation? If I start to look at opportunity generation, the easiest thing to always start with is my problems. And I think looking at it from that perspective is actually very unique because most people that are starting businesses would not be in that position necessarily. So maybe I can find a set of problems that are more unique to that situation that I can start to build something towards to fix. If I can't, I would start to find like, okay, what are the other things that I'm close enough to or have some past experience in or I have a connection to? Meaning like, could I get my first customer because a friend of a friend of a friend or whatever it is that would get me that first stepping stone? That would be my next kind of area to look at. It sounds like these are a couple levels that I wasn't expecting based on getting to that level of safety, right? And keeping in mind this, uh, the topic of the conversation, this business idea that we've had, 
assuming the listener is at this point where they feel safe with the amount of income they have, they want to build something out of a position of abundance. They buy into this idea. What's the first thing that they do? Yeah, I think the first thing is what I just talked about, which is finding anyone who is close enough to make a first connection. The first connection to me is the most important one because it's going to be the most trusted one and the easiest one. So I can start building momentum from there. So it's a friend of a friend, a family friend, uh, whatever it is, right? Some sort of connection that gets me that first step because now my second phone call is a lot easier. Hey, I spoke to John over at whatever company, you probably know his company because it's not that big an industry. And he said he had these types of problems. Do you have similar problems? It starts the conversation a lot, lot faster. You've given us a lot to think about here. It's been super helpful. What's a, a question that you think that we missed? What's something that you wanted to talk about or you need to, to share? Yeah. So I think the other key into all this in my mind is, I touched on a little bit, is building a business that's self-sustaining. Right. So I think that the focus should be far less on how do I raise money? You know, how do I do these things? How do I build a business that can sustain either my life or my employees' lives um, and give me unlimited runway? Meaning I'm at break even or positive cash flow on a month to month or two month basis, whatever it is that's most important. Because when I have unlimited runway, I can start to dig deep into problems. I can start to solve other problems. I can discover more customers, different industries. I can do all sorts of things when I have unlimited runway. If I have six months, 12 months, 36 months, whatever, in a limited capacity, I start to make decisions that may not be the best for the long term. I think that's one of the keys if you want to build something that actually works. So just to clarify, you were kind of differentiating between different amounts of runway. You use the term unlimited runway, basically, right? Just because I missed it and maybe some listeners might have missed it. How would you define that? Is that a particular number of months or years? Unlimited runway just means I've got the business to break even or cash flow positive on a month-to-month basis. Okay. Because at that point, I can continue running as I am forever, right? Right. And each time I incrementally increase my profit... I can then make a different decision and I can add someone to staff. I can test something. I can do a new marketing channel. I can do all sorts of things. But assuming that things are relatively constant and I can maintain, I could do this forever. Got it. Yeah. So for example, a six-month runway would literally mean if you kept going the way things are in six months. I'd run out of money in six months. The business would be dead. Yeah. Got it. Which means I either have to raise more money. I have to like make massive change. Something has to happen. So something's not working. How do you foresee a project like this growing? You've interviewed some people, you've identified some pains, maybe you've partnered with a developer, you've hired a developer. How do you see the growth of these type of operations going? You said you hired your first customer service person, like maybe after a certain number of time. When you start hiring people, how big does it grow? That kind of question. Yeah, so I think in the early stages, the most important is momentum. Right? I want to see things moving forward doesn't necessarily mean a certain amount of growth. I want to see customers coming back and saying, I love this. I'm going to refer you to a friend. Right, That to me is actually much more important than growth in the very initial stages. Once I've made it past that and I've started to generate a business that I believe I have the right problem being solved and things like that, I want to see roughly uh, doubling every year in the first years. So in their first year, that might not be that hard, right? I go from $1,000 to $2,000. But as that progresses, that becomes increasingly difficult. But I think that's the right benchmark, right? Like I should be able to double revenue each year for the beginning of my business until I get to some substantial amount of revenue that that becomes increasingly hard. That is a great metric. 
So we're coming up on time. I want to wrap things up and leave our listeners with uh, a plug from you. Listeners, you've heard this great business concept and this framework, really. It's not just an idea. It's a framework for how to approach businesses, which is super meaty and it's very actionable. So take action. Follow through on this. If you do so, you can potentially earn a one-hour mentoring session from David and you guys can talk about a potential business opportunity. So huge opportunity from someone who has two very large exits. He knows what he's talking about, as you can hear from this interview in itself. Uh, Thank you very much, David. It's been an absolute pleasure. Where can listeners find out more about you and anything that you'd like to leave them with? Sure. Yeah. So uh, unstoppablebook.com. That's where you can find myself. Um, Obviously the book, it's available on Amazon, Audible, all the channels you'd expect. Um, Totally different topic than we talked about today, but I think highly relevant to anyone, any entrepreneur or anyone starting a business, like their own personal health and how that delivers productivity. So also on the website is my weekly uh, email list. Uh, where I include uh, three things that I'm kind of thinking about doing, reading, watching, whatever each week. Uh, that's been pretty valuable. It's been growing way faster than I expected, actually, over the last few months. Um, so we're pretty excited about that. And, you know, I really do like to hear from people. And uh, my email address is on the website and pretty much available anywhere. Um, so if someone has a question, like just reach out. I try to make myself as available as possible. And email is usually the, the easiest, fastest way. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much. Awesome. All right, David, it's been an absolute pleasure. Good talking with you and looking forward to connecting another time. Thanks, guys. Now it's time for you to run with it. Follow through on the action steps discussed and email a summary of what you did to update at runwithit.fm. Every listener who emails us will gain exclusive access to a private Facebook group of action takers. And one listener will earn a free mentoring session with today's guest and potentially a business partnership. Help us build the Run With It community of generous entrepreneurs. Please like, subscribe, and review us online. And remember, the secret of getting ahead is getting started. Podcast hosting for the Run With It podcast is provided by Transistor.fm. They host our MP3 files, generate our RSS feed, provide us with analytics, and help us distribute the show to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. If you want to start your own podcast or you want to switch to Transistor, go to Transistor.fm slash run, that's R-U-N, and get 15% off your first year.